I'm getting old. It's getting darker up here or something. Oh, man, God's good, huh? Well, we're going to continue making our journey through the Olivet Discourse and trying to just be faithful to what the Lord of God lays out. And I know we, we went kind of fast last time, so I'm going to slow down a little bit, do a quick review. Well, we'll see how quick it is. And then uh, we'll keep pushing our way through. So I just want to remind you the context of the discourse. It's important. The context guides everything that we do, all the, all the stuff around it. So when we come to the Olivet Discourse, what traditionally, we, what, I, what happened? Yeah, I'm pretty loud, huh? Huh. That better? That will help for the recording anyway, huh? Otherwise, it's just a blank CD. And nobody likes to spend a dollar for a blank CD. Okay. Oh, now it's going to be real loud. So, when we, when we look at it, as we come to it, what happens is, we tend to put 21st century man there. Right? And oftentimes when we study the Bible... We, we, we want to go past all the work that we need to do and just quick get to application. When we come to the Word of God and we study the Word of God, we've got to first begin with observation. Observation means I've got to look at everything that's going on and I want to be able to, to see everything I can see. It's like, like if you were staring at a, at a table. Right? You ever done one of those tests where you're in a classroom? I don't know if you guys ever had that in class. And they got a table set with a bunch of stuff on it. And the guy, the teacher, the instructor says, I want you guys to observe this table. And he gives you however much time. And usually it's enough time for you to start goofing off and doing something else. Because it's like, yeah, i seen the table. There's a couple books, apple, whatever. You know? And then afterwards, he said, okay, test. Make a list of all the things that you observed about that table. And you sit down and you make your list. And, and you look at your list and you go, oh, I got five things. And you'd like to look at the table again, but he put a blanket over it, so you can't see the table no more. And you look over to the fellow next to you, and he's got a page and a half. And you start to realize, I haven't been very observant. Well, the same thing is true when we come to the Word of God. We get ourselves in such a hurry to go to application, and, and how does this affect me, and what's this mean? We start making leaps... Where we probably ought to, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's make sure we see all the pieces. that makes sense, everybody? We move from observation to interpretation. Interpretation means, before I apply it to 21st century me, i got to hear it in 1st century them. Right? That's the guys who wrote it. So I want to know, what are they talking about? <clears throat> what does it mean to them? That helps me make good application, Right? If I skip those other steps, sometimes my application can be bad. So we don't want to make poor application. We make good application. So we want to interpret it in context. What's happening? And that's what sometimes what gets skipped when we come to the Olivet Discourse. So remember, we talked about it a few times. Hopefully I can, if I keep doing it, I'll hammer it in. So Jesus entered in and was tried basically for... For several days, right? He comes as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But the Lamb has to be presented in what way? 
blameless, spotless, right? So then he, he, is, he is getting challenged, right, by the scribes, the Pharisees. They're trying to find some problem with him, right? We remember as we went through that stuff? So they're, they are examining the lamb. They're examining him to make sure all of that is okay. But there comes a moment when Jesus leaves. And it's important that we understand, he, when he's leaving, he's saying, the time, the time of this temple... The time of Judaic worship, the time of the sacrifices, that's ending. And he doesn't come back. He doesn't come back into into that area. So we look in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Here's what it says. Just so we can get context. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And then... Sorry, it went dead. Uh, (laughs) But you were not willing. So see, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you will see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is leaving the temple area. He says, your house is left to you desolate. Remember we talked about it. There, the, the Spirit of God, the glory of God, had not been on the Temple Mount for more than 400 years. Right? Hadn't been there. Jesus is the first entrance of the, of the glory of God into the Temple. Examined. They don't find fault with Him. He leaves. He says, that's it. This door is closing. The rejection has occurred. And, and there are some things... On the horizon. But he says at the end of that, right? You'll see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a proclamation of Messiah. So what he says is, this is over. In fact, he's going to be betrayed. We only got uh, three three chapters left in in Mark. Right? So crucifixion, burial, resurrection, boom, it's over. We're that close. So as he's he's leaving, as he's walking away, he says, You're not going to see me no more until you receive me. As Messiah, until you see me as a as a nation, as Messiah. In Zechariah chapter twelve, verse ten, this is what it says: it "says I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for their firstborn." The Bible is saying that there's a day, there's a coming day when I believe corporate national Israel is going to receive her Messiah. And not everybody, the Bible's pretty clear on that, not everybody who calls himself of Israel is of Israel. You know, we kind of developed some of those ideas as we work through the book of Romans. But there's a day when they're going to say, yeah, he's, Jesus is our Messiah. And scripture talks about that day when he will return as king. As king. He will fulfill the role of, of sitting on the throne for them. So we're talking about what's going on in context of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus leaving. Your house is left to you desolate. I'm not coming back. Basically until I'm recognized as Messiah. So... If you, if you know the book of Revelation, you know that's all the way to Revelation 19. That's, that's a ways out. In Mark chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Then he went out of the temple, 
And one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. So Jesus had just said, Your house has left you desolate. This is all passing away. I'm leaving and I'm not coming back until you recognize me as Messiah. And as he walks out, the disciples look up at the buildings and go, Man, these are killer buildings. Look how great this is. The disciples are still hung up on it. You know the early church was still hung up on it too, right? How do we know that? There's this book called Hebrews. What's the book of Hebrews all about? Hey, don't go back to the sacrificial system. Don't go back to the temple. That is passing away. It's going to go away. In fact, it did go away in 70 AD. That Christ is the fulfillment. There's an overlap, if you will, of the new covenant under Jesus Christ and the old covenant of the law for a brief period of time. Roughly one generation. It overlaps until the temple's destroyed and the, and the city of Jerusalem is wiped out and the Jews are dispersed until 1948. So he said, they say, look at the temple. Look at these great buildings. Jesus answered and said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another that shall not be thrown down. So what's he talking about? First century man, he's talking about the temple. Isn't he talking about the temple? Yeah, they're going to tear it all down. And then he went and he sat on the Mount of Olives, which is just opposite the temple where they could sit and look at the temple. And Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled. So then we come to, to uh, the, the answering of the question. So that's the context of what's going on. I think I got a slide to kind of highlight some of that stuff. I don't know if I can see it. So, again, Jesus leaving the temple for the last time. The disciples are still clinging to something that's passing away. Right? They're, they're looking longingly at the buildings. Jesus tells them it's all going to get wiped out. And then when they get to the Mount of Olives, they ask this question. When will this happen? The primary question. I'm not arguing that there's not three questions wrapped up in it. What's the primary question? The primary question on the minds of the disciples is not, what's the end of the world going to look like? The primary question is, whoa, you just said the temple's getting wiped out. That's, their prim- that's on the forefront of their mind. And in their mind, that's the end of the world. Right? Oh, if that happens, that would be the end. So they ask the question of Jesus. So Jesus gives them some answers. Let's go over to the next slide. So he gave them several warnings. Remember we talked about all these. There will be false Christs, false teachers to lead you astray. He said there would be wars and rumors of wars. Nation would rise up against nation, right? He said that that there would be earthquakes, natural disasters, earthquakes in various places, that there would be times of famine coming up. And then he told him there would be persecution. And it's important that we realize he's talking to his disciples and all those things happen to them. Every one of them. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes. You can look them up. Several earthquakes that happened. In fact, when I was over in Israel, I was surprised how many times we would go to a, to a, a city of ruin like Bet Shan. And you stand at Bet Shan and, and you wonder, why is it rubble? And they say it was destroyed in an earthquake. And then you go to another one. And you're sitting around and you're looking at this, this pile of rubble. And you're wondering to yourself, I wonder why it's a pile of rubble. And they say, it was destroyed in an earthquake. And then you go to another. It's, it's amazing how many places that were wiped out as a result of an earthquake. So, the important thing is, what did he say about all of those things? 
He said, this is not the end. Right? This is not the end. These are birth pangs. They're birth pangs. So when they're asking him for a sign, is that the sign? No, it ain't the sign. It's, it's warnings. Here's what is going to happen in the world. Let me tell you what's going to happen in the world. And all of these things happen to them. Are they still happening today? Absolutely they are, right? Every one of those. They, do they, does it make application to us? We still have false teachers? Sure we do. Wars and rumors of wars, even more than before, right? Earthquakes in various places, famines. All these things, the Bible says, is birth pangs. Something is going to be birthed in the process. Something is born. For them, the thing which is going to be born is a destruction of their world system. What they were all used to. For us, what's going to be birthed is something called the Great Tribulation. The 70th week of Daniel. We talked a little bit about that last week. And don't worry, we'll get back to it. So we can talk a little bit about it, hopefully, if I don't take too long doing all this. Okay, then he talked about the sign. So let's take a look at the sign that he did say. Okay, these things aren't signs. It's not the end. They're birth pangs. They're going to increase, increase, get worse, get worse, get worse. But they're not the end. So then he says in Mark 13, verse 14, he gives them the sign. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. Let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. A woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved before the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now when we come to this section, he's actually talking about the sign. Here's the thing that, that he's telling them in the first century. This is a sign. Abomination of desolation. And he told us where to go look for it, right? If we want to understand what it is. Where did he say to go look for it? Spoken of by who? Okay, so it's spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So, it's spoken of by Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 12. Guess where we're going to go next? You're right, you guys are so smart. So let's flip open to, to the book of Daniel. We looked at Daniel 9 last week. We'll, we'll briefly touch on it. But let's take a look at Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Daniel is an incredible book. Incredible book. Jason did a... A great study going through the book of Daniel uh, a while back, and I'm sure he didn't record it. But um, it is an incredible book to look at. There is a chiastic structure in the overall book uh, from chapter 1 through 8, I'm pretty sure, 1 through 8, um, that, that help us understand those first, those first uh, 7, 8 chapters. Some exciting things going on. We're not going to look at all that. We just want to talk about the prophetic issues in Daniel. So Daniel's written around 500 B.C., give or take. 
long time ago. And Daniel is, is gifted with seeing a lot of different visions, right? Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He has a dream and he wants to wipe out, kill all the wise men unless they can tell him what his dream meant. But do you remember the, the trick about it? The tr- what's the trick about it for Nebuchadnezzar? He said, if you, you, gotta, if you don't tell me what my dream meant, I'm going to kill you. What was the trick? Uh, first, you've got to tell me what I dreamed. And they said, what are you talking about? You've got to tell us what you dreamed. We'll tell you what it means. He says, no, if you're a wise man and you've got some kind of connection with visions, then you should be able to tell me what I dreamed. And there was a bad day for wise men all across Babylon, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to kill you if you don't do it. And word gets to Daniel, who's just a young man, and he says, there is a God in heaven who can do what's being asked. And so he is able to tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And when we look at that, all these things kind of fit together. So the dream of Daniel was this statue, right? Head of gold, chest of silver, uh, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet, iron mixed with clay. Remember? And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, here's the interpretation. These are kingdoms. Four different kingdoms. Ultimately, there are four different kingdoms that lead to the coming of the kingdom that will never end. Right? Remember a stone not made with hands hits the statue in the legs, grinds it to powder, grows up to become a giant mountain. That rock cut without hands, the chief cornerstone, who's that? Jesus Christ, right? So the coming of Jesus Christ is going to be during the fourth kingdom. The first kingdom was Nebuchadnezzar, head of gold. Next kingdom was the Medo-Persian Empire. Chest and arms of, of, of silver. The, the third kingdom was the kingdom of Greece. Remember Alexander the Great? Fourth kingdom was the kingdom of Rome. And we see the kingdom of Rome start as iron and get weaker and weaker. Do you notice that in their history? Rome starts off pretty tough, but toward the end, something happens. And then the feet, something weird's going on. we got ten toes. Uh, doesn't really tell us what's going on. Ten toes. The stone hits it. Wipes out all the kingdoms. Becomes its own kingdom. Later on, he has the, the dream again. He has the dream again in chapter 7. Only in chapter 7, it's beasts. You guys remember there another book that's got beasts in it, right? No? Yeah, so, so he has beasts. And it's the same thing. The beasts correlate with the statue. Everything lines up. Only instead of a ten toes, now it's got ten horns. You with me? So you have the beasts. You have all these visions that Daniel's been given. And he, and he sees them. And then we go to Daniel chapter 9. We were in Daniel chapter 9 last week. Uh, just briefly, just by way of, of overview, let me give you the quick and dirty run through Daniel. And we look at uh, uh, verse 25. Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem till Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks, 62 weeks, the street built in the end and the wall, even in troublesome times. So we know we've got 69 weeks of years. Remember I told you that word weeks? In the, in the Hebrew is like our word decade. Only our word decade means how many? Ten. And their word weeks means how many? Seven, right? How many days in a week? That's why we translate it that way. Seven 
Literally, it's seven sevens. So, so that, that, that is their, like their decade. So he's given us a countdown. From the time to go rebuild Jerusalem. We talked about it. There's a couple of decrees. It could be, I believe, it's a decree uh, to Nehemiah. In uh, March 14th, 445 BC, give or take a few days, um, that it's given and he goes and rebuilds the city of Jerusalem. All the other decrees deal with rebuilding the temple. Okay? So he goes and he rebuilds the temple. So he's given us the start point. We start from that moment. We count 69 weeks of years. Uh, and we, because uh, in verse 26 it says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be karat. So he says, okay, so from the kickoff point, 483 years, we come to the Messiah. The time of the Messiah. The time of the Messiah. It doesn't say it's the day Messiah dies. What does it say? It says after the 62 weeks. So there's a gap, right? We hit the 69th week. 62 plus 7 is? six. Everybody still with me? It's right there. <laughs> Just follow with me. So we got 69, 483 years, okay. Uh, Messiah gets killed after that. So whether it is uh, symbolizing his baptism and then three years of ministry leading to his death, burial, and resurrection, or if it coincides exactly with the day he comes into Jerusalem, it's, it, it matters really not. It's coming to the time of Messiah. So if you want to know when the Messiah is going to be, all you have to do is read Daniel chapter 9, right? And Daniel chapter 9 would tell you, just add it up. We've come to the time of Messiah. Then it says Messiah is cut off. He's put to death. And then the very next thing it says, <clears throat> somewhere in the gap, but after the 69th week, it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now, who is the prince who is to come? The prince who is to come. We have to ask ourselves, because there's two possibilities. The prince who is to come could be Jesus. Some people say it is. The prince who is to come could be the Antichrist. But look carefully at what's being said. It says, the people of the prince who is to come will do what? Destroy the city. So let me ask you, who destroyed the city? Rome in 70 AD. So the prince has to be a Roman. Right? The prince of the people who will destroy the city. So I think the prince we're looking at here is, is the person the Bible calls the Antichrist. The Antichrist. This is who the prince is. Look what it says. What will he do? He'll destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it will be a flood, which means dispersion. I just want you to think of a flood washing across what to do. It pushes stuff everywhere, right? So what's going to happen to the Jews after the destruction of the temple? What happens to them? Poof. They get scattered everywhere, right? There's a dispersion. The dispersion is cast out. Um... And until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So there's going to be a lot of battles, a lot of struggle, a lot of things going on. Don't we see that in the history of the, of the Jews? After the destruction of the temple, you had the destruction of Masada, a lot of stuff going on. So there's going to be desolation. And ultimately, he says, these things are determined. Um, uh, these desolations have been determined. Then he, which I believe is referring back to the prince. Who did we say the prince was? Antichrist, okay? Then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. So we had 69 weeks in... We had 70 weeks when we started, Daniel. We got 69 weeks to the Messiah. How many weeks we got left? One. Okay? This is where the idea of a seven-year 
uh, great tribulation comes from. It's the only place in the Bible where seven years is talked about. Okay, that's it. He makes a treaty with the many for one week. He comes in peace. When we study Revelation chapter 6, you have a rider on a white horse. What's he holding? A bow. No arrows, right? What's he come giving? Peace. What follows right behind him? War. Right? Comes speaking peace, but bringing war. So we have him here. Look what it says. It says he's, he makes a treaty with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering, which requires that the temple that has been destroyed in 70 AD must, what? It's got to be built again. Somewhere down the line, it's got to be built again. So, the temple is rebuilt. He's going to stop sacrifice and offering. And he's going to do the first time the Bible mentions in Daniel the abomination of desolation. Look what it says. In the middle of the week, he'll bring an end to, to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one that makes desolate. Remember, now let's just keep in mind something that makes desolate. What did Jesus say about the temple? See, your house is left to you how? Desolate. So what is it? Empty, right? So something's going to happen. This guy's going to do something in that temple to make it empty. Now I want you to think about the warnings Jesus gave them. Coming into 70 AD and the destruction of their temple. It is a precursor. It is a preview of coming events. What's the preview? For them... The things he's talking about for them is, look, they're going to destroy the temple. They're going to wipe out the city and everything's going to be washed and you're going to be scattered. That becomes a, a preview of end time events when we look at making application to what Jesus is saying to first century to 21st century. Hopefully, I'll be able to show you why that is. Okay, so that kind of gives us the first mention of abomination and desolation. Let's go to the next one. The next one is in Daniel chapter 11. I encourage you to read Daniel chapter 11. The book of Daniel is amazing, but Daniel chapter 11 especially. So it deals with the division of the kingdom of Alexander the Great. Remember, Alexander the Great conquered everywhere. He's roughly a young man in his 30s. He dies of uh, pneumonia. He doesn't have any kids. So what happens to his kingdom? It gets divided into four parts, north, south, east, west. The Bible said that before Alexander was ever born. In fact, when scholars and critics read Daniel 11, in order to deal with it, they try to say it had to be written after the fact. It's too accurate. It's too accurate in what it says. There's just this one problem. It's called the Septuagint. It's the translations that we have of Daniel that predate the, the time has Daniel in it. Uh, it's, it's to me kind of a moot argument. They did this thing. Remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? They found all them scrolls. You know, one of them was Daniel. And the problem is, it dates back to before the time of Alexander the Great. So there's really no way to get around the fact this is what God was talking about. In the division of that kingdom, north, south, east, and west, there's two of them that become prominent. They become the Ptolemy and the Seleucid empires. They're fighting against one another. And in Daniel chapter 11 verse 29, talking about this battle between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, it says, At that appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south. 
But it will not be like the former ladder, because ships from Cyprus will come against him. Therefore he will be grieved and return in a rage against the Holy Covenant. And he will do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those that forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him. And they will defile the, the sanctuary fortress. And they shall take away the daily sacrifices. And place there the abomination of desolation. So Daniel tells in chapter 11, another abomination of desolation takes place. And we can point to it, because the great news about Daniel, especially when prophecy is past, it's very easy for us to tell what's going on. When prophecy is future, it's a little trickier. Are you guys with me? So when we look back and we say, well, how's this work? If you take the history of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and you lay it over Daniel chapter 11, it all lines up. What was this fellow's name? Antiochus Epiphanes. What was he doing? He's making war. He's always making war. And he gets whooped. And when he gets whooped, the people in Jerusalem, the Jews, think he died. So they throw a party. He's dead. Ding dong, the king, which is dead. That's how it went, huh? <laughs> you guys know, right? What's that? Wizard of Oz? Ding dong, the witch is dead. But the witch isn't dead. So... They're doing this. They're singing the songs and they're dancing in the street. And, and meanwhile, Antiochus is coming back and he's going to pass through, through Judea. And he is mad. And he sees all this partying going on. And he's like, look, that dude may have whipped me, but you guys are not going to. So in, I think it's 167 BC, he comes in, he kills off the high priest. He sacrifices a pig on the altar and he sets up uh, an idol in the Holy of Holies. The abomination of desolation. That's already happened. That had already happened before the time of Jesus, right? So when Jesus is pointing to an event, an abomination of desolation, and we look at Daniel to look at it, we see Daniel chapter 9 talking about something more future. We see Daniel chapter 11 talking about something past. What does that tell us? It tells us that these are events that occur more than one time. That they occur in the past and they will occur in the future. The abomination of desolation is not some particular name. It's just a group of words strung together that says somebody's going to do something that makes God really mad and empties out the temple. And that's what happened with Antiochus, right? Antiochus, he's not the only one in the past who ever did it, guys. You have uh, the Roman general Pompey. He does it in 63 BC when he conquered the city and entered the Holy of Holies. The governor, Pilate, when he brought idolatrous standards in and set them around the the temple in 26 and 27 AD. The emperor uh, Caligula tried to set up a statue in the Holy of Holies, but he died before it could happen. That was in 40 AD. And the zealots, when they the rebels that were fighting against Rome around 66, they did the same thing. They just start running around the temple like they could go into it and do all those things. So, so we see examples of those things happening. We see examples of those things happening in the time of the disciples. But there's a group of people who say, who would say, well then, this is only talking about the disciples and the destruction of the temple. 
Right? They say, this is all it is. It's It's just in the past. And that's not an event that's yet happening in the future. Well, let's mosey from Daniel for a moment. And let's go look at 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're just going to look at the first four verses. There's a lot more we could look at. But I'm never going to finish with Mark 13 if I don't keep moving. So I'm, I'm more than happy to answer questions if we have questions. Hopefully I can tie this all up in a bow. Okay. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1. Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. We ask you, don't be so soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ has already come. So when, De- when uh, Paul is writing Thessalonians, we're looking around the mid-50s. Okay? Sometime in 50 A.D. When is Jerusalem destroyed? 70 A.D., Right? So it hasn't already been destroyed. And there's something going on in in Thessalonica where they think the day of the Lord has already come. Some kind of judgment, maybe because of persecution. You know, just like we did, they could run off with the idea of wars and earthquakes and famine and say, oh, it's over. But remember, Jesus said, that's not it yet. That's not it yet. So they think it's already happened. Maybe there's a spurious letter. Somebody was writing letters to the churches saying... You know, the day of the Lord has already passed, and we're still here, and you know, what's that mean? And so Paul writes this letter. Now, this is an important concept. Thessalonica is not in Judea. You know where Thessalonica is? Greece. You know who it's made up of? Gentiles. Are there Jews there? Sure, there's Jews all over the place. But it's Gentiles. It's Gentiles that he's writing to. When Jesus is talking about the warning in 70 AD, what area is it specific to? When he says, when you see this run, what, you remember the area? He says, those who are in Judea, flee. Right? He doesn't say those who are in Thessalonica. Does he? No, why? Because the abomination of desolation doesn't happen in Greece. It happens in the temple. So when Paul's talking, talking to the Thessalonians, this is what he says in verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, unless there is a falling away first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Okay, there's several names that the Antichrist goes by. Man of sin, son of perdition, little horn, Antichrist, and there are... Some say the Syrian, and there's one more um, that I don't remember. So, there's other names. But he's talking about the Antichrist, the Pseudo-Christ, the man of sin. He's got to be revealed. Right? So he says before the end comes, he's got to be revealed. Uh, who opposes and exalts himself above everything that is called God, or that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Has that ever happened? Never. 
So what does that immediately make it? Future. So Daniel, when he's talking about an event taking place, Paul's probably describing that event when he talks in 2 Thessalonians, that the Antichrist is one day going to sit on the temple and say, I'm God. And when he does that, the words that Jesus said to the first century guys, when they saw the abomination of desolation, was to do what? Run for the hills, right? Get out. Run. Get away. Go away. You don't want to be here. Okay, so... So when we look at this, we see the future element of it. But remember when we read Daniel 11, that had already happened, right? Remember Antiochus Epiphanes? That occurs between the Testaments, after Malachi, before Matthew. That already happened. Daniel prophesied it already happened. So how can something already happen and still be future? Simple. It's not that complicated. There's more than one of them. Does that make it... All that complicated? There's more than one? Well, let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you. Let me try to bring the bow around. Luke 21, verse 20. So in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, they both name an abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Luke doesn't do that. You remember how Luke describes it? Similar language. Look what he says. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then know that its desolation is near. Now listen to the language. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the middle of her depart. Let those who are in the country not come back in. For these are days of vengeance that all things may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is what? Fulfilled. So when we look at the teachings of Jesus, we want to remember what John tells us. In the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John says, if we wrote everything that Jesus said or did, all the books and all the libraries of all the world would not be able to contain it. Okay, that is hyperbole. You guys know what hyperbole is? It is an exaggeration to prove a point. What's he trying to say? There's a lot of things Jesus did we, we don't write down. Are you guys okay with that? So the things he says, but these things we did write down, for what purpose? That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So there's a specific purpose behind what they wrote. We have four Gospels. Three are called Synoptics. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all written like eyewitness accounts from different points of view. None of them claim to write down every word Jesus ever spoke. But they're written by eyewitness accounts of the guys who were with Jesus. Peter, James, John, the fellows that were asking him the questions of the Olivet Discourse. They're all sitting around him. So as Jesus is talking about them, Matthew focuses on something. And Matthew's glance looks more future than present. And Mark's is like a mixture. We'll see it in a minute. And Luke's is what? What's Luke looking at? The destruction of the temple, right? Clear. When you see armies surrounding the destruction of the temple hand, what, it, what does God say to do? Run for the hills. 
What does he tell Mark to do when the abomination of desolation happens? In Judea, do what? Run for the hills. What about in Matthew? You see the abomination of desolation happen. What does he tell him to do? Run for the hills. Never did he say run into Jerusalem. Which really is what they did. But that's not what he said. What he, what he said was run for the hills. So I think I, got a, I think I got a slide trying to wrap it up. What's it say? Okay. So when we talk about the abomination of desolation, what is it doing? In Mark, it's standing where it ought not be. In Luke, it's surrounding the city. In Matthew, it's standing in the holy place. So you guys see what I'm saying? In Mark, standing where it ought not be is kind of an open interpretation, right? It could be surrounding, it could be in the, in the temple area. So he could be looking either way or both, right? Showing us that something's going to happen soon and something's going to happen future. Luke is specifically telling us, hey... Fellas, the destruction of the temple is going to happen when you're surrounded. Get out of town. Right? Very simple, similar language. Matthew, he says when you see him standing in the holy place. That's the holy of holies. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Thessalonians, right? That's future. Are you with me? So when, we're, when we look at the Olivet Discourse, don't assume when we read it, every word Jesus said is given to us. They are pulling out these points that, that fit in the story that they're telling. So Matthew, in his emphasis, he, he's, he's drawing on what Jesus said that, that fits him. Luke is pulling out what fits him. Oh yeah, I've got to make sure I warn everybody, the destruction of the temple's coming. Mark, when he pulls his out, maybe he's saying, I want to make sure both guys can kind of see it. So I'm going to say, standing where it ought not be, instead of standing in the Holy of Holies. But what are they all talking about? An event that makes the temple empty and the people need to leave. Are you with me? They're talking, they're all talking about an event that is coming and the people need to get out. So what specifically are they told to do? That's the next slide. What is it that, they're, what, what is it that these who see it are called to do? Get out of the city. Run to the hills. Don't hesitate, don't wait. Don't even grab a coat. Right? You look at all the accounts. What's he saying? If you're on the roof... Don't even come down to leave. You, you get what, what a hurry that is, right? Don't take the stairs. Just jump. But hope you're not on a tall roof, right? You get what I'm saying? He says, if you're in the country, don't come in and get your stuff. Get and pray you're not pregnant because it's hard to run off, run for the hills carrying a baby, right? That you got a nurse. And if it's winter time, that's rugged trying to do it in the snow. So you don't want it to be in the winter, you don't want it to be in these times. And that really happened in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. And it becomes a preview of future events for an event that's really going to happen in the future. And I look back at Daniel, and I look at where Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation, which was Antiochus Epiphanes... And I say, that one was past. And then I look at Daniel 9 and Daniel 12, and I say, that one is future. If that's true, all it's telling me is there's more than one event. There's more than one time. When we want to recognize that these things 
are coming, that they're going on. So, so then that immediately brings us, look at verse 19 of Mark 13, because here's where we, we want to start to, to um, be in too much of a hurry and make application before we observe and interpret. Okay, you with me? So, Mark 13, verse 19 Again, in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh will be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now most of the time when we read that, we think, well, if it's a time that's never been as bad as ever before, it's got to be talking about the end, right? The problem is, that's not how first century guys wrote or read. What do I mean? I'm going to show you several verses up on the, up on the screen. We're going to work our way through real rapid. The point is just to show you how they describe the event that's going on. Okay, you with me? 2 Kings 23-25. It's talking about Josiah the king. Look what it says. Now before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Now does that not bring up any questions in your mind? Well, first off, how about David? What, what did scripture call him specifically? A man after what? God's own heart. Hmm. And if you spend time studying Josiah, and studying Hezekiah, and studying David, you're going to see a lot of great similarities between them. What are those great similarities? They had awesome times of following the Lord and watching God do amazing things. And they had, uh, they had crazy times where they were boneheads. And made mistakes. But at the end of their life, their reign was so good, in essence, what the writers say about those guys is there was never a king like this king ever before or ever after. Let's look at another one. 2 Kings 18.5. Talking about Hezekiah. In 2 Kings 18.5 it says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him. Among all the kings of Judah, nor were nor who were before him. Same kind of thing, right? Nobody was ever like him before. Nobody was ever like him after. Well, David was before. Josiah was after. So what am I saying? Well, the Bible's all screwed up. No, the Bible's not screwed up, man. It's, it's meaning what it says. What's it saying? It's laying out for us that these guys were really awesome kings. And there was nobody else like them. It's not using language that is intended to be taken literal. It's using language that is to say, man, these guys were awesome. What did they all do? They brought revival. What did they all do? Turn the eyes of the people back to the Lord. They changed the course of what was going on. That's how they moved. What am I saying? I'm saying sometimes in, in uh, figures of speech in Hebraic or Hebrew figures of speech, they would use language like there's nothing like this before, nothing like this after, to tell you it's a really killer time. 
Are you with me? Is that, is it, if it makes any sense, let's look at another. Exodus 9.18 Behold, tomorrow about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Similar language, right? There's going to be hail. There's never been hail like this hail. He goes on in uh, Exodus 10. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt, rested on the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. Now you say, well Jackie, I, I don't know if there ever was locusts. Well read Revelation. The angel's given a key to the pit and he goes and opens the pit. What comes out of the pit? Locusts, what does it say about them? There's never been anything like him. In fact, the locust had a name. The head of the locust, the king of the locust. His name was Abaddon, the destroyer. Sounds like pretty crazy locust, right? <laughs> What's the point? The point is there are figures of speech that were utilized, that were normal part of their conversation. And it's unfair for us to come in the 21st century and say, well, that doesn't make sense because it made sense to them. We have to make observation and interpretation according to the text, what the text says. You guys okay with what I'm saying so far? I hope so. If you're not, you can argue with me later. I'm happy to do that. Joel chapter 2, verse 2. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. <clears throat> a people come great and strong, the likes of whom has never been, nor shall there ever be any such after them. For uh, even for many successive generations. He's describing this incredibly large army. And he describes it as a darkness coming over the land. A darkness coming over the land as the army is coming in judgment of the northern, I want to say northern kingdom, I think it's Assyrian, could be Babylonian. Uh, I'll look at it later, but doesn't matter. Big army. Was there ever going to be a bigger army? What's the book of Revelation talk about? How big is that army? It talks about in, in the book of Revelation. Do we know? 200 million man army? That's a big army, right? Whether it's a, 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 a literal army or a demonic army doesn't really matter to me. A big army. Are you with me? There shall never be, nor shall there ever be again. What's the point? It's a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech. So when we are looking at Mark, when we take a look at what it says in Mark, it says... In those days there will be tribulation, right? For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. What's my point? My point is, he can be talking about two events. He can be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And he could be talking about a really dark time coming at the end of history we look at as what? The great tribulation period. He could be talking about both. And it happens to be in a chapter that's got a lot of a double meaning in it, right? The abomination of desolation, future, and the destruction of the temple. Wow, both of those things are very clearly drawn out in those three chapters. So we look at this great tribulation. There's no reason to say that in those days, <coughs> that phrase, in those days, it's got to be able to refer to the first century guys too, is my point. Are you with me? It's got to be able to refer to the disciples, to the questions that they asked. So it's going to be crazy, and he says, and, it, and if it wasn't shortened, there'd be no flesh spared. 
We tend to look at that and say that means no flesh around the whole world. But if he's talking to the first century believers and he says no flesh shall be spared and he's talking about the destruction of the temple, what no flesh is he talking about? Oh, there'd be nobody's going to live through this, through this siege in Jerusalem unless it was shortened. How short was the siege? Five months. How many people died? Somewhere between 600,000 and 2 million Jews. That's a lot, right? That's a lot. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose. The Bible talks about several groups of elect. Doesn't it? Is the, is the nation of Israel elect of God? The Bible calls them elect. What about the church? Is the church elect of God? Yep. What about later on when we look at tribulation saints? People who come to faith in that final last great period of time. What are they called? Elect. Elect. All elect means, guys, is that these, these are people God chose. These are people God chose. So when I look at that, and I see there's going to be this incredible time of tribulation, and there was this, there was this short siege, and a lot of people got killed, but not all of them. Some people lived through it. And, and I look at that, I can say, man, that happened for them then, but does that mean it can't be yet looking at future? Is there an event coming that's going to be a great tribulation that if it wasn't shortened, it would wipe out all flesh? Have you ever read the book of Revelation? Every chapter, something's blowing up and people are dying. So, I just want you to see how things can refer to what's going on and what's, what's moving ahead. Everybody still with me? Everybody going, oh, why did I come today of all days? Man, he's, he's talking, doesn't make any sense. He's going too fast. I don't know. Um, okay, then look, then look what happens. Okay, working our way through Mark as our guideline. So back in Mark 13. Mark 13, verse 21. Immediately after he talks about that great tribulation and sparing the elect, look what he says. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, <coughs> excuse me, even the elect. But take heed, I have told you beforehand. So he gives another warning about false messiahs. Let's flip over to that next slide. I think I got it there. So when we look at these false messiahs, I think there's a couple of things that go on in this. One, he's saying, remember the warning that I told you. When you see the city surrounded, what are they supposed to do? Get out. But what if somebody stands up in the city and says, no, it's going to be okay. He's like, don't listen to that. Don't listen to some false messiah. Don't listen to some false deliverer who says they can save you. Now let's move forward into the future event. Let's talk about the tribulation period, halfway through the tribulation period. Like Daniel 9 said, there's going to be an Antichrist sitting on the, on the throne calling himself to be God. What, is God. what does Jesus tell people to do when that happens? Get out of the city, right? Get out. What if somebody in the city like the Antichrist says, no, you don't need to leave. I'm God. I got you. Yeah, don't listen to false messiahs. Get out. You guys get what's going on? So as we follow the flow of what's happening in the Olivet Discourse and what the Lord is laying out, we have these false messiahs. Hey, don't listen to them. Get out. Get out. <clears throat> okay. God is good and 
I'm not going to finish chapter 13. <laughs> okay, but let's look now. Let's go down to the next part. Next morning, is a, there is a radical change coming. Radical change. What are you talking about, Jackie? I've read this a hundred times. Let's look at it. Mark 13, 24 to 27. But in those days, what's this next phrase? After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send His angels and gather together His elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Man, we look at this and we say, okay, so at the end of the tribulation, Jesus is coming back. We see this, this is not the rapture, this is... Uh, what some people would point to as the parousia, the parousia, his second coming. It's written about in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back and, uh, and does battle with the armies uh, of the world. Well, but remember I told you when we look at it, do we look at it for 21st century man? Who do we look at it first? It's written to the disciples, right? So do we really think that the word Jesus has given them is for us, you know, 2,000 plus years later, and, it, and it's not answering their question about the destruction of the temple. It, it tends to be what we do though, right? So, so I'm just saying, let's, be, let's, let's look and see. Is, is that the best? Remember, what's the first thing when we do Bible study? The first part I told you about. We're looking at the table, what do we do? We make observation, right? We observe. We observe. The Bible is a big book, right? So how much of the Bible we want to look at? So we want to look at the whole counsel of God. That's what Paul says, right? Look at the whole counsel of God. Let's see. Let's see if, there's, if there can be any other thing that, that this can uh, refer to. Every one of your Bibles probably has a note saying that it refers to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, beginning around verse 9, says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. That's an often used phrase in the Old Testament, right? The day of the Lord comes. Cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And He will destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than a golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. And when we look at that, we would all say, yeah, that correlates with exactly what we look at as the day of the Lord, right? The day when Jesus comes back, when He deals with a Christ-rejecting world, and, and with all the things that have taken place. Okay, there's just one problem when you read Isaiah 13. You've got to know who He's talking to. Who is He talking Who's being judged in Isaiah 13? Babylon. Who is God using to judge them? The Medo-Persian Empire. And what does God say? I'm going to wipe you out. And the sun will go dark. And the stars will not shine. And the heavens will shake. 
You get what I'm trying to say? There's a literal event happening, and God describes it with cataclysmic, cosmic events. And we see those cosmic events come up over and over again in Scripture. Big cosmic events taking place. The sun, we just had a, a, a several blood moons, right? Remember Joel, chapter 2? That the sun will be darkened and the moon turned to blood before the, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And we look at Joel chapter 2. He's talking about judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. That's who he's talking to. That's the context. Are you with me? So there are places as we work our way through scripture where this language is used speaking about God's judgment. That was God's judgment, Isaiah 13, God's judgment against Babylon. Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 7 and 8. This is God's judgment against Egypt. Look at it. So when I put out your light, I will cover the heavens, I will make the stars dark, I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give her light. All the bright lights of the heavens I will make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. Now people say, oh, you can't say that. If, if that didn't happen, then it's, then it's not true. No, you have to say, what does this mean? What does this mean to the people who are reading it? When Ezekiel gave that prophecy, dealing with the world power of Egypt and them being judged by God, and the judgment came and God dealt with them uh, uh, through the, the use of his judgment, he's describing what it's going to mean. What's he saying? What happens if the sun goes out, the stars stop, stop, the moon turns to blood? I'd say life is never the same again. What do you think? If the sun's dark, the moon quits working, the stars fall out of the sky, the heavens shake, the whole earth shakes, nothing's ever going to be the same again. Radical change, crazy change, world power kind of change is taking place. Egypt's being put down. Uh, um, Babylon is being put down. Those things are being done. Does that mean it has no, that, that I'm saying that that doesn't matter for the future? No. I'm not saying it doesn't matter for the future. Because when I go to the book of Revelation, and I read the same things, and I know that the book of Revelation was written in 92 to 95 AD, which by the way is after what? The destruction of Jerusalem. Then I know that Revelation is talking about an event where? future so that when when revelation uses the same language i can say man this event nothing's ever going to be the same again is that being consistent with what the word of god teaches because really that's the charge that we want to be right don't we want to be consistent because sometimes what happens is we 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 vacillate between being literal and not taking things literal we'll say this is a figure of speech but then over there it's not a figure of speech we, we, we want to try to be consistent when we look at what the Word of God lays out for us. The Scripture also said that you'll see the coming of the Son of Man, right? Coming on the clouds. Your, your Bible will probably refer you to, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. 
Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. That fits with Daniel, right? Remember Daniel? I told you it's a stone, hits him in the feet, grows up into a big kingdom, lasts forever. Right? So we have these events. Uh, um, Talked about. So what's he saying? They saw the Son of Man. They will see the Son of Man coming. Jesus is going to say the same thing to, to, uh, to the high priest. He's going to say, tell us, just tell us, are you the, the Christ? And he, he's going to say, I am. Which, by the way, is ego I me, and everybody freaks out when he does it. And he says, you will see the Son of Man seated where? In power. And coming. What's gonna, what is he referring to? He's talking to first century guys. What I believe he's referring to, what I believe he's telling them is, you're going to see me coming in power because the old ways are all going to be washed away. Is there a temple today? Is there a temple sacrifice today? Is there any of the old covenant surviving? No. So where do we find ourselves? Under what covenant? New covenant, right? The Old Testament takes us to, to the edge of the old covenant and then it says there's a new one coming. And then Jesus comes and what happens? New covenant, the new covenant's here, the new covenant's here. There's an overlap. New covenant has come, but the old covenant's still here. And people are going back and forth. And Jesus says, that's all going to be taken away. And in 70 AD it was. So sometimes, when we look at it, I don't want you to think, oh, Jackie becomes some kind of crazy, preterist, post-mill wacko. I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Look, I'm still telling you, all of these things refer to a future event. There is a great tribulation coming. There is an Antichrist coming. Jesus Christ is going to sit on a throne on earth and reign and rule as king. Currently, he sits on a throne in heaven. And he rules and reigns as king. Right? What happened in Daniel 7 was the, the ascension. Jesus goes up into heaven, sits down on the throne. He's ready. What's he waiting for? The day when he comes back. The return of the king. Not some lame movie about orcs and elves and dwarfs. It's the return of the king. Jesus Christ comes back. Boom. Sets up his flag. Sets up his kingdom. That's a real event. It was also Jesus talking about real events that were happening in their time that was washing away the old covenant and ushering in the new. So I I don't want us to lose sight of those things. I don't want us to lose sight of that reality and quickly just jump over. You guys understand what I'm saying? I hope so. If you don't, send me an email. Tell me how I messed up your entire eschatology. And I'll talk you through it. Here's the reason why this is important. Last verses. I know we're, we're a little bit over. Have mercy. Verse 28, Matthew 13. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that the summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happen, know that it is near at the doors. Kind of helps us. A lot of people want to point to the fig tree and say, well, the fig tree represents Israel. Israel became a nation in 1948. So the generation that saw Israel become a nation won't pass away before Jesus returns. Now let me say very clearly, I believe Jesus can return anytime he wants. He can come back today. I hope he does. I'm real tired of doing funerals for us one at a time. I'd like us all to go at once. Jesus Christ can come back 
whenever he wants. I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. I believe in a millennial reign of Christ. I don't want you to lose sight of those things. But Jesus was talking to people standing right in front of them who were going to see the old covenant and the old ways wiped out. So when he says in this gospel, when you see the tree, what's he saying? It's not difficult to understand. When you see leaves coming, you know what's going on. We see all the leaves turn. Do we know what's happening? Yeah. So we see things going on. We go, oh, the new season's coming. A new season's coming. Right? So Jesus says to his disciples, when you see all these things happening, all these wars, rumors, wars, earthquakes, famine in various places, when you see all the things that we've talked about, right? These radical changes, armies surrounding, things are, are crazy, things are happening, false Christ, false teachers, all that stuff going on. When you see it happening, know this, it's at the door. And then he says, this generation will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Folks, that's when Jesus answers their question. Remember the question? When will this happen? What's the answer? In your generation. What thing is he talking about when he says in your generation? Destruction of Jerusalem. The end of the temple. The old covenant passed away. The new covenant ushered in. Everything you've ever known as a child is going to be washed away and everything's going to change. Is that true? Absolutely. What's he saying to us? Okay. Book of Revelation has an inclusio. Try not to use big words. What's an inclusio? It starts with soon these things are going to take place. In the first chapter. In chapter 22, Jesus says, soon I'm going to return. We got soon at both places and all over inside. Soon at both places. What does that mean? Having an inclusio or bookends that both say the same things means that when it begins and when it ends, it's all got to happen at one time. It's all got to, once it starts, nothing stops it. It doesn't pause. It doesn't, it goes all the way to the end. You with me? How long is it? Seven years, right? If Daniel, if we, if we're understanding Daniel right, it's seven years long, right? And once it starts, it's not going to pause, stop, anything's going to, nothing's going to stop it till it finishes. Okay, it's going to start, go, and end. So when I look at Jesus' words here, and he says, when you see these leaves and, and things happening, when you see the things he's talking about that says that the great tribulation has begun, he told us in Daniel, how does it start? A seven year peace treaty with the nation of Israel. That's what he said. A prince is going to make a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. And the watch gets hit. And that begins. And the generation that sees it start is going to see it end. Are you with me? We don't have to do crazy gymnastics. What we have to do is be honest with the text and say, I'm going to observe it. I want to look at it. I want to know what's the whole Bible say. I want to put it together. I don't want to just jump to conclusions, right? Because I heard a lot of other people say this. What's it say? What's it mean? What's it, how's it fit? How's it come together? And, and hopefully, you know, that we're, we're somewhat able to do that. Okay? Look, I got, I, I'll turn it off. So I'm, I'm almost done. 
The next verse in the, in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 13, takes us someplace else. And it's kind of exciting as you work a little bit in the original language. Um, you can see some of the things that I'm talking about a little bit better. But I just want you to look at how verse 32 begins. What's the first word? But, right? But. If you go backwards from that, work your way through chapter 13. Every but is a contrast. In contrast to what I just said, something different. In contrast to what I just said, something a little different. contrast to what I just said. When we look here, all of a sudden, we don't have stop clocks and starts and kickoffs. What do we have? Nobody knows the time. And what's he say? Everybody be what? Be ready. Huh. But you have to come back next week because I don't have no time to go over that now. So hopefully, hopefully the stuff that we talked about really helps. So guys, I, I, I don't want to leave you without the, well, we talked about all these dates and all these events and I don't really know what any of this stuff means. Here's what it means. God has a plan for your life. What do you mean? He's got a plan for the whole universe. He knows when things are happening. He knows when they're going to happen early. He knows when they're going to happen late. He knows how they're all going to come together, how they're all going to meet. And that means that God has a purpose. He has a purpose for everything under the earth. And He has a purpose for you. He had a purpose for David. He had a purpose for Hezekiah. He had a purpose for Josiah. He's got a purpose for Jackie. He's got a purpose for Lisa. He's got a purpose for Ezra. He has a purpose. Nothing's random. Nothing's just scattered all over the place. Although sometimes our lives feel that way. And so we need to live our lives in such a way that we go, Lord, I know that there is purpose in this day. There is purpose in this event. There is purpose in what's going on because I see when I look at the scripture, purpose everywhere. There's purpose. God does things on purpose. He has purpose. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, forgive me for going so long. Lord, uh, I just, God, I just want to really be honest with what Scripture says. And I don't want to just say what everybody else says just because everybody else says it. There, there are things here that I hope...